very great pleasure to have been asked back to talk again. And to be honest, um, Rob's not here now, so I can say this. This was Rob's title. I prized it off him a fortnight ago because it. Oh, there he is, sorry. <laughs> uh, because it appealed to me. And at the time I thought I'd, I'd got the good end of the deal, and I saw Frank Hines on Tuesday night, you know, our former youth worker who's now church planting as a vicar in Wigan. And he said, Sean, of all the parables, of all the passages in Scripture, this is the one I would never want to preach on. Because why did it not superficially very clear? It contains some very complex theology, so fools do rush in. Um, but I chose it because two reasons. One is I've never understood it, and I wanted the challenge of props challenging myself uh, as you spend a fortnight thinking about a passage of scripture and reading the commentaries in some detail. But also because this is me, you see, isn't Simon a lovely guy? Whenever I read 1 Timothy and it talks about Paul's advice to a new young pastor being left in charge, it says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're only young, but set an example for the brothers and sisters in the way you lead your life, the way you talk, in your love, in your purity, in your speech. And, um, but in the same way, this, this is me. I am, unfortunately now, too old to dig and too proud to beg. So I felt a personal connection. I guess many of us are like that, even though I worry about the future far too much and I have less excuse than many because I'm in a a public sector job with a pension and uh, I have more protections than many here today. But I had an accident recently. I am... I fell off the back of the stage when it collapsed on me at one of the single news things and I broke two ribs and they took me into casualty and then the radiologist said, don't get off, don't get off that stretcher, don't, don't, don't you move. Um, and, and as I lay on the stretcher in casualty, I, I began to think about this story because it's, it's an easy line. I'm too old, too weak to dig and too proud to beg for a living. What would happen if I lost my ability to work or if I just lost my job because I disappointed my boss? Or made a big mistake at work. What would I do? I am unable to dig. I'm afraid for a living. I can do an hour in the garden on a Saturday. But I couldn't do it for a living. And I'm I'm not really cut out to sitting outside. Asking people if they can spare some small change. This is a 2,000 year old story. But one that resonates today. It's about a typical middle manager. One who has had responsibilities given to him. One who has had trust put in him. But he has failed in some way. He has disappointed He's not been a good steward of his master's possessions. Allegations, rumours you might say, have come in to the master that he has wasted his master's money. And I don't know, the only thing I watch on the telly at the moment is The Apprentice. Sir Alan Sugar would say, Lord Sugar now, after he'd said, no more talking, I'm talking now. He would say, I'm sorry, you're not cut out for business. You're not going to be my apprentice any longer. Present your accounts, pack your little black suitcase because you are fired. You're fired. And unfortunately, it's tough, isn't it, uh, to face that situation. So in the first half of my talk today, I want to look at what it means to be left in charge of something, to be given management over something, to be given stewardship over something, to be given responsibility. Because all of us have at some time been entrusted with something. Now, if you're only little, It might just have been to feed the cat for a week while somebody next door has gone away. But if you're a parent, it's the responsibility to uh, feed somebody uh, and bring them up emotionally and physically and spiritually until their 18th birthday. Although Rob was murmuring something to Simon explaining that it goes on 
a lot longer than the 18th birthday these days. Um, the Bible teaches us, though, we have been given responsibility for so much more, and we've been entrusted with so many gifts to do with which so much more. So, to stewardship. But first, the key point about stewardship is that it's not your money. You are not the owner. You have been trusted with what actually belongs to somebody else. If the steward today just wasted his own money, he wouldn't have been in trouble. He has wasted um, his master's money. Maybe he had to make a bad loan. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody ran off with the loan. Who knows? Uh, but chapter 15, if you're reading this along, you'll see that it comes immediately after the lost son, the prodigal son, the lost coin, uh, and the lost sheep. Jesus has been sitting, talking to a bunch, as it says, of tax collectors and sinners. And these people knew this life. They made their living farming taxes for the Romans and taking an illegal profit on top in betrayal of their countrymen. They also made their living in lending money. All farming economies rely on getting a loan and paying it back when you get the harvest in. And the Pharisees, who were rich, were looking on and sneering because these people were making money against Jewish law by charging high rates of interest. But the hypocrisy, of course, was that it was the Pharisees' money. They were very rich and used these middlemen to do their dirty work for them. In the same way, the Bible makes it clear that everything we have, our money, our gifts, our time, our talents, is given to us to use for our master's purpose, and it doesn't belong to us. Now, some of you will remember a few years ago here, uh, Stuart, I think, showed a video uh, by a guy called J. John, who was an evangelist, talking, uh, it's a sketch called Donuts, and we haven't really got time to describe the whole sketch, it's about 10 minutes long, uh, but it's on YouTube. If you just type in Donuts, J. John, it's the first thing that comes up. It's a very famous sketch, and basically, two guys have bought a little bag of donuts each and sit down in a crowded station buffet, opposite one another and the first man is about to reach for a donut when the man opposite steals his donut and while he's staring at this he picks up one of his own donuts to, uh, to establish possession and the other man glowers at him and they go through the whole bag like this and the other man eventually stomps off but then he picks up his newspaper and immediately sees his own bag of donuts there all the time and the message he brought out after about 10 minutes was that some people are given one donut, some people are given a hundred donuts in this life, but all the donuts are God's. And that was an easy thing to remember, uh, the tagline, and we'll be coming back to that, all the donuts belonged to God. Secondly, it's an honour uh, to be asked to look after something. You know, those of us in work have had to show that we deserve the responsibility that the job attracts. Far more so than any of the other bright young things sat outside in their best suits in the queue outside. Similarly, in Israel, in the first century, men uh, fought and bribed and cajoled and pleaded for these roles. And similarly, those of us who serve God in any way in a church, a privilege it is to welcome, to make tea, to clean, to teach the kids, to preach, to befriend, to say hello to a stranger, to administer, to warden. Uh, and all the ministries we do beyond church, these are not duties. These are privileges that God has given us something that he has entrusted with to use for his purposes. Just 
digressing into work at this congregation. There are more people still in work than at the 9.30. But we get a bit cynical about jobs sometimes, don't we? Especially in this environment. We think we're working for the worst possible employer in the worst possible job at the worst possible time. And it may, you never know, it might actually be true. But I, <laughs> I had a young lady trainee pre-registration pharmacist about five or six years ago at, at the hospital I work in in Liverpool from a lovely uh, Liverpool uh, Catholic family. They're all teachers and things like that, uh, the sort that Steve would know, uh, from actually from his parish um, from that area, who uh, had fought her way through life and uh, Manchester University with cystic fibrosis. It's an inflammatory lung condition that carries a drastically reduced life expectancy. But she'd got a degree, she'd got a good degree, and myself, who was interviewing, and my fellow interviewer, we gave her the job, despite her health issues, because she was the most motivated, driven uh, pre-registration trainee that we'd ever met. But sadly, the year didn't go well for her, and three quarters of the year through, she started to get episodes of infections and sickness, and she died just before she was due to qualify without ever qualifying. And... um, I don't regret it for a moment, um, but we all went to a funeral. Uh, about 30 or 40 of us went down to the funeral, and the parish priest, they were a very, very devoted Catholic family, the parish priest was thanking everyone for coming, and he said, I want to say in a special word to those of you who've come from, um, from this young lady's workplace. Um, just, she said, she wanted me to tell you something. Uh, she told me this before she died. She wanted me to tell you, and I don't know whether you're churchgoers, don't know whether you're Catholics, don't know whether you're Christians, but she wanted me to tell you that it was the proudest day of her life when she secured that position to train at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital, we don't often say the full name, but he did, and put something back into the care of others through the NHS that had done so much for her. She understood the privilege and the honour of being entrusted with a responsibility. Because thirdly, Stewardship is a responsibility. It involves a commitment to do something, to make a profit for the master or a good outcome, whether it's marriage or child rearing. You know, um, I, I mentioned Rob again rather than rather than doing two parents' mornings. But when Rob uh, was looking after Bethany when she was about three, if he left her outside Weatherspoons to go in there drinking for three hours, we wouldn't have been judgmental to say to him, "That's not exercising that responsibility very well." And even if the only thing you've ever done is look after a goldfish, you're in charge in the best sense of that word. Not you're bossing him over like you're in charge of the world stands, but you have been charged with that responsibility. It's for you to deliver on. And the shrewd steward, of course, had failed his responsibilities by losing his master money. In the parable of the talents, similarly, the least invested in servant who only got one little bag of gold buried it rather than using it for a return. To be entrusted with a responsibility of stewardship or management is to have that responsibility to do something with it. Fourthly, stewardship is only temporary. By definition, if it's not your money, if it's not your gift, if it's something that you've been entrusted with, at some point it must be returned to the person from whom you got it. The master in this story wanted his loans back with profit. It's cost him 400 barrels of olive, or 400 gallons of olive oil. That's 20, 40 gallon oil drums. That's a lot of olive oil even today. None of the things we're entrusted with is ours forever. The cat's owner will eventually come and collect it again, whether you want that or not. 
Jobs have retirement dates or redundancy. Children grow up and leave home. In fact, it's part of being a good parent that you want that to happen at some point. And everything we possess except God's love for us, poured out on us, will be taken us, taken away from us when we die. We are merely temporary stewards of our money, our bodies, our talents and our time. And this is what the rich fool forgot in last week's sermon that Steve did that follows on immediately from this story. You can understand now why Jesus told that story immediately afterwards. The rich fool, sorry, um, and the rich fool, uh, the rich man forgot it last week and the rich fool forgot it in the parable of the rich fool when he thought that his life would never come to an end. But the other thing that the rich fool forgot in that parable was that stewardship is accountable at the point when your temporary responsibility for whatever it was comes to an end. The master today wants us to know where his money was. And one day we will have to stand before God and each one of us will give an account of themselves, it says in Romans. Now we know we will stand with confidence because we belong to God through our faith in Jesus. But equally it says he will want to know how we handled the responsibilities we were given. Now I work in an environment where once a year my boss appraises how I've got on with all the things she's entrusted me with. And then I appraise the people who report to me. But when I go in to see my boss... I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to say we've not achieved this and we've not achieved this, but we have done this, I want to say, and we've got this done. And the same way, on that day, when as surely as scripture says, we all have to come before God, I don't want to be ashamed when I account for what God has temporarily entrusted me with. And so, and so, to today's story, the manager is out of options. He lives in a society where there's no welfare state, no redundancy and no pensions. He only faces destitution because he is too old for manual labour and too proud to beg. He has no friends. The rich masters dislike him for exposing their hypocrisy and failing him. And the poor clients despise him for screwing every last penny of interest that he can get out of them. It's looking grim. He's going to go hungry, he might starve, his children will starve, his wife will starve. He remembers, though, at that point, the classic line of Corporal Jones, which the young people won't remember. But Corporal Jones would always say, if things get difficult, you should not panic. Don't panic. Use your head. And that's always good advice. Now... Uh, when you put your slides in on Thursday, um, it's too late to pull them, but um, uh, since, I, since it's up there, I'm a bit long on this sermon, but since it's up there, I've left it in, uh, and I will cover it rather than saying let's just whip through that, because you're very interested in why there's a train there. I was in, yes, <laughs> a seemingly disconnected item, but... <laughs> I was in northern Romania three weeks ago because the flights to, to Romania from Israel and back from Romania to Liverpool and Manchester are a fraction of the price of doing anything else. And I've never been. And um, there's some beautiful countryside. It's really good value as a country. And Fred will know this. The trains from... Where's Fred? Oh, he's, he was here a second ago. Um, where, um, the trains from Romania might only get one or two a day. Um, and you're not always sure what's going on with them because they don't often have signs or, or, or timetables or things like that uh, published up. 
Um, and when it came time to go back, uh, I got on this train from a little town called Bistritz, heading back towards the city from where I would get the connection to Bucharest overnight to fly home from. And on this train, uh, we, the first 10 miles was okay. It was back the way I remember coming up. And then it came to a junction, and half the train went one way, and the other half of the train went the other way. And I found myself on a train heading not to the west of northern Romania, back to the city with the main line, but somewhere up into the hills. And uh, trains in Romania also very, very slow. And four hours later, we'd probably got about 50 or 60 miles up into the Carpathians, and it was getting dark. We'd only passed tiny little stops at the side, little more than a, than a little metal sign, uh, and props people have to jump down from the train onto it. And we came to something that looked like a station, except that it was all boarded up, and it had one streetlight, and it had nothing else in sight, and it was just getting dark, and the guard comes up to me, because... I'd remember this line, you know, try and keep a clear head. And the guard comes up to me and says, you, off, a key, here, now, now, get off, get off. And uh, I thought he was throwing me off. Well, he was throwing me off the train. So this train then pulls off into the gloom, and I'm left standing in the middle of nowhere, somewhere that looks very like this, just in the middle of nowhere, on just a tarmac platform, no houses around, no timetables, Maybe or maybe not a train, but, you know, with no phone, with no internet, um, on the phone, no timetable for seeing what's going on, and getting dark. And we are in Transylvania here. <laughs> but what should I not do? I should not panic, no. Or to put it as, um, as another word of advice from Paul to Timothy in his instructions to him as he left, you keep your head in all situations. Very good advice. Um, do, I, do I ring somebody up in the UK and tell them, well, how would that help? Do I sit it out here? Uh, as they see in all the movies, I'll just sit it out here. It's only 12 hours till dawn. Do I go up to the castle and knock on the door? You know? <laughs> anyway, I digress. The point was, you should use your head. I haven't got time to finish the end of the story, but I'm here to tell the t- <laughs> Oh, the end of, you want the end of the story? <laughs> I'm stood on this platform in the pitch dark, and literally 60 seconds later, I hear a whistle, and a train comes round the bend in the other direction. The doors open, and uh, I say, wherever this train is going, it's going somewhere, so I got on it. <laughs> and at four o'clock the following morning, I found myself in Bucharest, and it had a happy ending. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, but don't, 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 don't panic, keep your head. So, so it was for the steward. He came up, when he used his head, he was shrewd, and he came up with a plan so cunning, as Blackadder would say, you could pin a tail on it and call it a fox. And this is what happened, and I'll be back in three minutes. And that's why the rich man had employed this manager who would handle the contracts. But today, he was angry. What is this complaint I hear about you? Wasting my money? You've lost your job as manager. Close the books. Put the accounts in order, then bring them to me. The manager faced a hopeless situation. He had nowhere to go and no friends to help him. The man was not physically strong, so to work as a farm laborer was impossible. And in this situation, nobody would employ him again as a manager. He was too proud to beg. Somehow, he must find a way out. For a few hours, he still had control of the business, 
and he was clever. He could not rob his master, but before he turned in the accounts, he could make some changes. The changes would be perfectly legal, and in fact, most people would be very pleased. The answer was so simple, so obvious. He must act quickly, very quickly. He would stay in the office, and one by one, he would send messages to the farmers. Just one at a time, he would ask them to visit him, and he would have a surprise waiting for them. Olive crops were a risky business, so to borrow cash valued at 50 measures of oil, the farmer would have to pay back 100 measures, two times what he had borrowed. The olive grower came immediately. He knew there must be a problem, but the manager seemed friendly enough. Uh, how much do you owe my master, he said. A uh, hundred measures of oil. Why was the manager asking a question like this? After all, it was the manager himself who had fixed the amount. Uh, take your bill and change it. Write 50. It was a free loan. The interest had been removed. The olive grower could hardly believe his good fortune. Why the manager had been so generous to him, he could not imagine. But what he owed the lender had just been cut in half. In a few moments, the document was sealed by the manager, and it was official. The olive grower felt all his worry disappear. Forever he would be grateful. And if there was anything he could do to show his appreciation, he would do it. Another farmer had borrowed money against his next crop of wheat. The interest rate would have been 20% with perhaps another 5% for price changes on the market. But now the manager wanted to see him. The message was simple. Come, quickly. No explanation, just the message. Again, the manager started with a question. How much do you owe my master? A hmm, hundred measures of wheat. Uh, take your bill and write 80. Again, the contract was revised to the benefit of the farmer. The loan must be repaid on time, but with no interest. Now, both of these men were in his debt, and the manager would always be welcome to eat dinner. One of them might even offer him a job. And so it went on. By the end of the day, there were a lot of very happy customers, and one very popular manager. What could the master do? The law of Moses said no interest should be charged at all. The manager did his dirty work for him, charging high rates. The master himself had told him to put the accounts in order, and that is precisely what he did. Not in the way the master expected, but exactly according to the law of Moses. Now the whole community was singing the praises of the man who charged no interest, the true son of Abraham. He might not like what the manager had done to him, but he could only admire his quick thinking. 
And you can imagine Jesus talking to the, as it says, the tax collectors and the sinners. Uh, and you can imagine him talking to them. And they're all having, it's a great story, having a laugh as well, because this, this was their lives. Um, but uh, remember, Jesus is telling this parable for a purpose to them, to the Pharisees listening, and to us today. And, and the reason Frank advised not to touch this subject with a barge pole, and he wouldn't do it himself, um, was that every commentary interprets the story in a slightly different way. One says it's the most difficult parable of all to explain. So if you don't agree with what I say today, you are well within your rights. It's not immediately clear. But what they all agree on, and what is is clear, firstly, it is not a lesson about how to deal with redundancy. It's not a lesson in business ethics about how to be an honest employee because Jesus makes no comment on the ethics of either the rich man, the owner, or his manager. It's not praising dishonesty in any way. The steward is not commended for his dishonesty, but he is commended for his ability to think clearly about the situation he's in. Because scripture, just to make this absolutely clear, scripture is watertight on this. Paul says that Christians cannot do good by doing anything bad, skullduggery, underhand behavior, lying. Christians' behavior should always be beyond reproach. But the steward is being commended for something that Jesus later says isn't very common, which is not panicking and using his head for his shrewdness. Because the manager certainly was initially foolish. He forgot whose money it was. He grew reckless then and therefore forgot that not only firstly was it his master's possessions he was gambling with, but secondly, that there is always always an accounting. He would have to stand before the master at some point and explain how he had dealt with the master's possessions that he had been entrusted with. And clearly there is a challenge to me and to all of us here. How are we uh, doing with the things that we have been entrusted with? Are we really any better? Do we remember that everything we have has come from God. Because if we do, we're on the right track, firstly, for gratitude for it, and secondly, to generosity with it. And a few months ago, Rob talked about how people who are generous are usually happier. But it starts with an acknowledgement of whose property it was. And even if we do remember that it comes from God, do we try and blur it around the edges? We say things like, well, I've worked hard for all I've got. I've added to what God gave me to start out with. Well, there's two answers to that, and it's probably true. Most of us in jobs do work hard, do a lot of unpaid overtime, go above and beyond because we care about what we're doing. But it still doesn't make it that it's yours because there are two things here. Firstly, if you have added to what God's given you, great. Like all stewards, we're supposed to take what our master has given us and produce a return for him, not for ourselves. The world, you see, thinks what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. But people who live in the kingdom are supposed to say what's mine is God. I'll use it for his kingdom's purposes. And secondly, the Bible makes it also clear that thinking we've earned what we have as a reward for our own efforts is dangerous thinking. 
A thousand years before Jesus, in Deuteronomy 8, God is talking about the harvest festival and why it's important to give thanks. And he talks about, you're a farmer, you look out at your fields, and your houses, and your barns, and your animals, and your hay in the bales. And you say to yourself, God says, you say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands and my skills have produced all this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God... Uh, has given you these things. It is he who has given you the ability to produce this wealth in the first place. All the donuts are God's. But onto the point of today, the shrewdness of the steward. This is what the master is laughing about at the end. And this is what Jesus is exhorting to his disciples. Like the steward facing the chop. Like me stood on a dark railway siding in, in Transylvania. Yes. Like Paul advised... Uh, Timothy, think clearly, think shrewdly. Now, shrewd is a difficult word, and we don't hear it much these days, but it's not, it's related to wise, isn't it? But it's not quite the same as wise. And even the Good News Bible, which tries to make everything as simple as possible, sticks with the word shrewd because it can't find a better word. It means something like clear thinking, cleverly organized, sharp witted. Far-seeing, something like that. The, the best word in English is actually in Scots, where they talk about being canny. But those of us who aren't Scots uh, don't like to use those sorts of words. But that's what it is. It's being canny uh, with what you've got. And the, sh- the steward is certainly canny here. He has the certainty of dismissal and the uncertainty of what comes after it. But he acts to deal with it in a clever way. And what Jesus is saying is, in a similar way, all of us as human beings have the certainty of death and the uncertainty of what comes after it. And for Christians, we have the certainty of death, but the certainty of being welcomed into the kingdom. But are we acting shrewdly in the meantime with what we have? Now, my workmate has bought all her Christmas stamps already in case the price goes up. That is shrewd. And you're thinking, that's a strange slide to have up in the Church of England on a Sunday morning. You're thinking, that's 18 rolls of toilet roll. And indeed it is. And I put it on because I was just so impressed. After staff meeting on Thursday, I wandered into bargain buys on my way to the train station. And I saw these 18 rolls for 2 Or, if you buy two packs at once... <laughs> 250. That is amazing. You cannot get four toilet rolls for 250 on the spa or on the corner. You know, I want to go back in and buy 10 packs that will last me until the next century, probably. But that's shrewd. And you may have been admiring my glasses from where you're sitting. Um, they, you know, uh, people say they're sparkling. That's a strange sort of glasses to wear. And I say, yes, but. I can carry it off, can't I? Yes. But just to be clear, now, just to be clear, any opticians here? No. As a pharmacist, I mustn't disparage the profession. I can lose my job for that. And I mustn't discourage you from getting regular eye examinations. But having said that, in the context of this, who needs opticians? £200 for a pair of reading glasses that you lose the first week behind the back of the sofa. These are a pound and you get three diamante crystals on the edges (laughs) with them. You can buy ten pairs at once, and that is shrewd. You can break them, you can lose them, and you're still much better off for the day on which you lose them. That is shrewd. And finally, now, at the moment anyone is unwise to mention a certain big thing happening on March the 29th next year, I merely say we live in uncertain times. 
This is my British passport. Whatever crazy rules our government comes up with at any time in the next 30 years, I know that I can present this at Manchester or Liverpool Airport and I will be welcomed back into the United Kingdom because I have a British passport. That is a privilege, by the way, to have that. My colleague, Fadzai, uh, is Zimbabwean and she's here on a long-term visa. Uh, And she went to Venice last week with one of my other colleagues and my other colleague turned back up and I said, where's Fadzai? There's work to do. Fadzai's stuck in Italy because she couldn't get on the plane at Venice Airport because Ryanair say that's not valid. It took a week to get her back. This is a privilege to have. But in an uncertain future... Who knows what the rules will be? I've also, by, for a small fee of £70 and a family history going back 100 years, acquired myself an Irish passport. This means that myself, any children I might have, don't laugh, it could still happen, <laughs> have the absolute right, whatever happens next year, to travel and live and work and move freely in the other 28 countries in Europe. And that's a great privilege as well. And that's being shrewd. And this is what Jesus is saying in verse 8. He says, in this world, um, the people of this world, literally the people of this temporary age that is passing, shrewdness is second nature. We all do it, don't we? But if only, if only the people of the light would show the same shrewdness about the future life to come. And this is why the story of the rich man and the poor man starving at his gate follows on so well. They had failed to think about this altogether just as much as the rich fool. We need to be as shrewd in thinking about the next life and how we are spending God's resources in this life that we hold trusteeship of very temporarily. Because the parable then moves into some very, very hard teaching about money. Now, we've been made steward of many gifts that we'll have to account for. Our personalities, our time, our talents, uh, our gift for speech, our ability to console others, our energies... But here, Jesus is focusing on money and possessions. And in scripture, money is not neutral. Now, it has to be said, John Wesley said in a sermon, uh, earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. But that's different. That is using your wealth for the kingdom. But the phrase worldly wealth... It implies, and scripture is not positive about money, it disparages it. Um, The phrase worldly wealth was translated in the King James as unrighteous mammon. Mammon is just another word for money in Hebrew. And Paul and Peter describe it as filthy lucre. If it's not careful, it can be something very, very distasteful to us. And yet going back to Wesley's principles, earn a lot, save a lot, give a lot... These are also good principles as well, and both can be held, both views can be held at the same time, so long as we remember that it's God's money. Because after all, if you can't save up, if you can't get a mortgage, if you don't plan for the pension, you could be in very uncertain times. Without the ability to give generously, this church couldn't function. Our missionaries couldn't live abroad and work there. The poor and those we help would not be helped. So money can do great things for the kingdom, but only if we can release ourselves from its power. And once we see that 
everything we have is merely ours for temporary custodianship, then, um, and we see it through, uh, not through our own efforts, and it's, then it becomes something that can be used for God's purposes. It's not ours to disperse as we like. Now, we've talked on tithing here in the past. Some Christians very keen on tithing. Some people think it's not biblical. But what you can't say is, I've given God his tenth, the rest is mine. All the donuts are God's. And one of the commentaries said that either as Christians we will be mastered by our love of money and will deny others' needs and use others potentially to make ourselves happy. Or we will put God first and let ourselves be mastered by God's commandments and we will put others first and spend the money into the kingdom. We can't have it both ways. We'll either be mastered by our our love of money and our insecurities and deny others and use others, or we'll be mastered by God's love and our love for others and use it for their needs. And as we spend this way for God's purposes, we will indeed be making friends in the right place. Friends of God who, as we arrive at the great arrivals lounge in heaven, will be there to welcome us like that little crowd at the end of Love Actually who were there to meet all the people coming off the plane. You see, there's boxes being assembled there for the children's uh, shoebox collection. And somewhere, a child in a refugee camp who you'll never meet will open that on Christmas Day. Somewhere in this world, there are people in a prison in Bolivia being ministered to, if not by Julie, by people who Julie has trained. Somewhere in in South Sudan, in a war-torn country, uh, which is tearing itself apart, there are people who are being nurtured in the gospel by people who Lynn has trained to be catechists. People come into this church, this building that your giving keeps open, and they might just wander in. But they'll be touched by something. They'll come back. They'll meet somebody who talks to them the next time. They'll be invited into a cell group. All these people, we don't know what the consequences of our actions are. But we will meet them and be welcomed by them in the next world in joy. And Jesus is saying here, just remember and be shrewd. You see... I can be both British and Irish at the same time, you see. When I'm, when I'm coming back to the arrivals gate at Manchester in a couple of years' time, and they're being very strict about who gets in, I'm British, okay, through the electronic gates, just and you're in. You're welcome. If I have to go to business to Amsterdam or Barcelona, well, you guys would all be stood in the long queue, and uh, I'll be saying, sorry, sorry, I'll see you on the Rambler, I'll be drinking ice cold champagne there, I'll see you at 8 o'clock tonight. <laughs> But what I want is the passport that will get me into the next world, into the next age. This age is passing. Everything in it is passing. And Jesus says in verse 8, I can either choose to be one of the people of this world, literally one of the people of this age, or I can be one of the people in the light, a child of God. And when I get there, I want to be welcomed in uh, by my faith, uh, demonstrated by my acting as a good steward of everything I was entrusted with. Now, going back to the 90s, which some of you are too old to remember and some of you are too young to have remembered, there was a film called My Best Friend's Wedding, starring Julia Roberts. Now, Julia Roberts, it's a dreadful film. She's got four days to split up her former boyfriend who's getting married, and she's decided she loves him after all. And she's got four days to split him up, and great fun while she ruins uh, the chances of this couple ever getting to the altar. But towards the end of the film, her gay friend rings her up from a long way away and says, you know what you're doing here? 
You have a small but finite moment of opportunity to do the right thing. One sentence that transforms an otherwise terrible film into a very profound film. You have a small but finite moment of opportunity to do the right thing. Because this life, as Steve was saying last week, is small and finite compared with eternity in the kingdom of God. Didn't he say like a grain of sand compared to the deserts of eternity? You have a small but finite moment of opportunity in this life to use what God has given you for his glory and his purposes. And in that short window, negligible compared to eternity, we are all challenged to surrender control of what we think of as our assets, our ambitions, our desires, our dreams, and build his kingdom. And then we will truly be welcomed into heavenly dwellings by people who we never even knew we were helping. You see, those debts the manager was writing down were called a chirographin. It's funny enough, because I talked about this at Easter, didn't I? The, the, the way you write a debt down, chirographin, like chirography, uh, the science of handwriting. Hand, chiro, and graphon, writing, a written debt. And Colossians, uh, the passage I was preaching on, says that Jesus has taken, we have a written debt, a massive debt of sin against God's glory. And Jesus has taken that chirographin and torn it up and nailed the bits to the cross. That's what Colossians says, cancelling our debt. And so in comparison, the small things that Jesus talks about here that you want to be trusted with are indeed small things. And that's why Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew, he says it, don't store up for yourself treasures in this life. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths can't eat it, where vermin can't chew it and destroy it, where thieves can't break in and steal it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, when I was in the pub with Frank, uh, we were in a pub talking about this. When I was in the pub, they were having quiz night and they were doing that name, that tune. And the tune that was on was, don't remember Shrek and Donkey, but actually it's, um, it's Ricky Martin, La Vida Loca. You know, he's got a crazy girlfriend who likes to do strange things like, what was it, take her clothes off and go dancing in the rain. She's crazy. She's living La Vida Loca. And I only mention it because it was playing then. And I was thinking about it yesterday. Well, I was thinking about this. Isn't that what we're called to live? The crazy life. Not to, not to do that sort of thing, but um, <laughs> to live the crazy life. The one that makes no sense. The one that does not value everything that people around us value. The one that looks to eternity and lives in that reality and wants to draw other people into it. Than the one that's thinking about the next year or the next 10 years or the next 20 years. Isn't that what God wants to do? The crazy life, the life that once you choose to live it and you put your trust in God's provision is just so exciting and offers up so many opportunities because all the donuts in the end belong to God. Let's just pray. Father God, you have given me, you have given us so much. You have given us financial things. You have given us our talents, our skills, our time. You have surrounded us with, with so many things. Lord, help us be shrewd, be wise to think to the future uh, like, like today. The, the thing that the manager was commended for and think clearly about the fact that one day we will stand before you 
not in fear, not in trepidation, not in shame, but we will cheerfully say what we did with those resources to build your kingdom among the poor and the needy and those lost from the knowledge of your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.